listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number 13 in the series. Today's episode is titled, Terrible, Glorious War. So welcome to episode number 13 of Trojan War, the podcast. This episode is titled, Terrible, Glorious War. Now, you'll recall that the way things ended at the end of the preceding episode, uh, the episode about the duel between Paris and Menelaus, well, the two armies had assembled for the first time in the entire 10 years of this war outside on the plains of Troy, outside of the walls of the city, But they weren't actually intending on fighting in that particular day. The diplomats had managed to put together a a peace process, an exit strategy, which was going to work for both sides in this war. And as a consequence, only one man was going to die in that day's um, battle. It was either going to be Paris representing the Trojans who died or Menelaus representing the Greeks who died. And, And once that trial by single champion was over and one of the two men lay dead on the ground, well, then whatever reparation payments had been agreed to in advance would be made. And one way or the other, by the end of the day, Everybody expected that the Greeks would be packing up their long ships and and sailing back across the Aegean Sea back to the Greek Peninsula war over. But things had not turned out that way at all. The the Olympian gods had managed to get involved, and the Olympian gods had managed to, well, through a whole series of machinations and maneuvers, had managed to essentially allow the Trojans to cheat in the contest by, well, Aphrodite spirited her pretty boyfriend Paris off the battlefield before Menelaus could kill him, and then Athena, doing her little bit to perpetuate the war, had had encouraged a Trojan to violate the truce between the two sides and launch an arrow. And suddenly, Well, this war, which was looking like it might never happen, was happening in full vigor and fury outside the walls of Troy on the plains. And the war involved 75,000 of Hector's soldiers against 100,000 Greeks. Well, neither side had really had an opportunity to to properly prepare for the war, marshal their forces or assemble their lines or, or decide on their strategies because, well, neither side really expected that they'd be doing anything but witnessing a fight that day. And so when it had broken into all-out combat, the, the forces of the two armies were so close together that it, it was really too late for the generals to call their forces back and to, to reestablish their offensive or their defensive positions. And instead of a structured, organized, single-day's combat, combat, what emerged was a melee, an insane, no-holes-barred, smash-and-grab attack. They were fighting with spears, they were fighting with swords, but many of them were fighting with rocks and fists. They were in so close to each other. Now, in the early stages of the day's fighting, the Greeks were clearly ascendant, and there was a clear reason for this. The obvious reason for this, of course, was their their vast numerical superiority. The Greeks had 100,000 men-at-arms, and though these men-at-arms had recently been through and were just recovering from a plague, well, it was early in the morning. They were well-rested. They were well-hydrated. They had food in their bellies. So uh, the effects of any residual effects of the plague weren't going to hit these Greek soldiers till late, late, late in the day. And so that was when the Greek generals would have to start to worry about dehydration and electrolyte balances and things like that among their troops. But 
For the first part of the day, the Greeks with their 100,000 men just had overwhelming superiority or Hector's 75,000 soldiers and he hadn't managed to line them up in proper defensive positions and as a consequence, the Greeks had the upper hand on things. But as it turned out, as the day went on and the Greeks began to fatigue, it became, uh, the fatigue of the Greeks became entirely irrelevant anyway because Athena had decided on that day that she would champion a particular Greek soldier in the fighting and the Greek soldier that Athena championed to that day and the things that that Greek soldier did, well, they made the efforts of of all Greek soldiers and all Trojan soldiers for that matter in the battlefield somewhat moot. One man, one Greek champion managed to turn the tide of battle on that day single-handedly. So I'm going to tell you his story. His name was Diomedes. He was a Greek warlord and I haven't told you anything about Diomedes yet because up until this particular day, uh, Diomedes has really been a bit player in the entire Trojan War epic. Uh, a little bit about about the man. He was a warlord king. He was the king of the city of Argos, a, a very powerful Greek city. And Diomedes actually, uh, when he had come to Troy, had come to Troy to fight alongside Agamemnon because way back in the day, all those years ago, if you recall, when Odysseus had set up the oath of the quartered horse, well, Diomedes had been one of the suitors towards Helen. So he had signed or agreed to that oath of the quartered horse along with the other warlords and consequently was now here 10 years later on the beach officially trying to get Helen back to her husband. Now, Diomedes, when he had arrived at Troy, uh, brought a fearsome, fearsome army with him. He, he brought 80 ships and, and consequently 8,000 men, which was second in size of army, only the forces of Agamemnon himself. And Diomedes also brought with him a reputation as a fierce fighter. He had a, he had a very well-padded resume of previous exploits and other conquests and wars before the war against Troy. So he was no slouch in the battlefield and highly, highly respected by the other generals. But on the particular day when the fighting broke out here for the first time in 10 years and no hold bars fighting when uh, when Athena decided that she wanted the Greeks to have the upper hand and be ascendant in the fighting that day Athena went looking for a Greek warlord to to imbue with special majestic fighting strength and, and Athena chose for the day the warlord Diomedes so here's how the day's battle went down for Diomedes well Athena chose Diomedes and then what she did is she prepared Diomedes for battle. The first thing that she did is she in infused Diomedes with some form of deific cocktail. We don't know what it was, but but whatever it did is it it, it coursed something through the veins of Diomedes and it imbued Diomedes with, with strength which wasn't human but was much, much, much closer to that of a god himself. Diomedes became larger, stronger, uh, more inexhaustible in his fighting, more ferocious in his fighting, less, less vulnerable to injury, uh, completely, completely fearless. It, it was a lethal cocktail that Athena fed through Diomedes. And, and, and then when she completed doing that, of course, she turned around and, and she modified Diomedes' armor. He had normal, wonderful, glorious bronze armor. He was a warlord. He could afford good armor. But Athena made that armor positively glow and blaze. Uh, accounts of Diomedes in the battlefield is that as he ran into ranks of, of panicked Trojan soldiers, it was almost as if fire were shooting out of his shield and his helmet. So bright was the glow of that armor. And it, and it caused genuine terror inside of the ranks of the Trojan soldiers. And, and, and then once Athena had set Diomedes up for his successful glorious day, a, a form of success and glory, which I'll talk about later, but which the Greeks referred to as an aristia or a moment of, of surprise supreme excellence in, in, in accomplishment, and in this case, the accomplishment being combat. Well, then Diomedes had waded out into the Greek forces uh, and the Trojan forces and single-handedly turned into, well, the most glorious wrecking machine that anybody had ever seen in the history of any battlefield in any epoch up until that point in world time. Diomedes 
was unstoppable. And we, we have no record of the number of common cannon fodder foot soldiers that, that Diomedes slaughtered his way through in that morning because, because this, this story is encountered inside of Homer's Iliad. And Homer, as I've, I've mentioned to you before, only really addresses the warlord heroes. But you have to imagine that for Diomedes to get to the warlord heroes of Troy that he wanted to fight, there, he, he had to wade his way through an awful lot of lesser men who could not get out of his way in time. But eventually, Diomedes made it to one of the Trojan warlords a, a prince, a, a man named Pandarus, who was, who was no slouch of a soldier. And Pandarus was tooling around the battlefield on full speed, uh, being driven by a chariot and a driver and launching arrows into any Greeks that he could see. Diomedes, um, actually early in the fighting, uh, before his real conquests got going that morning, actually managed to get hit by one of Pandarus's arrows. And, and, and the arrow that hit Diomedes actually punctured right through the front of Diomedes' breastplate through his torso out his back, through the back of the best plate, and, and, and then the arrow actually just hung there inside of Diomedes' body. The, the arrow at the back, the, the feathers of the arrow still in front of Diomedes. And, and it was one of those blows that had not Diomedes been infused with this deific power from, from Athena, well, it, it would have killed Diomedes. But, but instead, because Diomedes was having his special day, Diomedes had laughed, looked at the arrow, then turned to a fellow Greek warrior and, and, and said, just pull it through, pull it out my back. And, and the warrior had braced his foot against Diomedes' back, grabbed the head of the arrow and pulled the entire arrow, feathers and all, clean through the entire torso of Diomedes, who had then just grinned, laughed, shaken it off, no harm done, and headed back into battle looking for Tandaris, the, the, the man who had hit him with this arrow in the first place. Well, over the course of that morning, Diomedes managed in his search for Pandarus to cut through the cream of the Trojan nobility. And we have actual numbers of the number of dead Trojan men that Diomedes killed that day. Not, not the cannon fodder, whose names were never recorded, but we know that 12 major Trojan warlord cousins of Hector or warlord allies from other nations that were supporting Troy all died that day at the hands of Diomedes. And, and, and that actually gives him inside of the Iliad, I think the, the title as the most badass day of fighting by any warrior on either side in this war. Well, eventually Diomedes managed to track down Pandarus, the guy who had tried to kill him with the arrow, and, and Pandarus, now armed with a javelin, had hurled a javelin at close range at Diomedes, which Diomedes had just managed to cleverly and easily brush away with no ever whatsoever, effort whatsoever. And at that point then, Diomedes had launched his javelin into the body of Pandarus, and this was his first major kill of a major warlord during the day. The spear lodged inside of Pandarus, and I think what I'll do is I'll take the trouble to actually read you Homer's description of, of how Pandarus managed to die at this moment. Here is Homer accounting the death of Pandarus. Diomedes aimed, and Diomedes threw, and Athena guided a Diomedes spear, and it hit Pandarus on his nose, near the eye, and thrust down, and drove through Pandarus's teeth, and the sharp bronze spear sliced off the tongue of Pandarus at the root and came out at the base of the poor man's chin. Pandarus fell from his chariot into the dirt and his massive glittering armor clattered upon him. His two horses panicked and swerved aside and the soul of Pandarus slipped from his body. Well, that was Diomedes' first kill, and I'll give you the Homeric treatment of that one, which I just have, and then and then I won't tell you how the other kills go down in Homeric language, because Homer does it beautifully, but if we did, well, we could be here not for an hour a podcast, for but a week a podcast. So we'll, so we'll just take it for granted that every one of these slaughters inflicted by Diomedes that day onto some Trojan champion involved graphic and nasty scenes of horrific and very creative ways of dying on a battlefield. 
Well, next up on the Diomedes uh, uh, ransacking of the Trojan forces was a very, very significant prince again. He, his name was Aeneas, and he, he was a cousin of Hector in Paris and, and from a different family line, but still a distant heir to the throne of Troy. And, and, and a very interesting character inside of this story because Aeneas was really, in a sense, a mirror of Achilles himself. And the thing that Aeneas and Achilles had in common is that both Aeneas and Achilles had goddesses as mums. Uh, Achilles' uh, mum, of course, was Thetis, the sea nymph, and Aeneas' mum was actually Aphrodite, a goddess of lust, sexual pleasure, and all good things south of the waste. And, and, and they both, of course, had human fathers, uh, obviously uh, uh, Peleus for Achilles and a, 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 Trojan, a, a Trojan king uh, for Aphrodite. Well, Aeneas was out fighting in the, in the forefront of the Trojan ranks. He was a fearsome fighter, of course. He, he had deific blood in his veins, which helped him out. And, and Diomedes managed to track him down uh, sometime mid-morning in the day of the fighting. And by this stage, Diomedes had managed to lodge all of his spears. His sword had broken. And so Diomedes, by this stage in the fighting, was, was using whatever he could find in the battlefield. And what he found when he got near Aeneas and began to fight with Aeneas was a massive boulder lying there in the middle of the Trojan plain. Homer tells us that this boulder was so large that two grown men of today could not have lifted it without help from an oxen themselves. But, but Diomedes, of course, uh, hopped up on whatever Athena was infusing through his veins, picked up this massive boulder, hoisted it easily over his head, and managed to throw it a great distance and, and, and crush it into the pelvis of Aeneas. It, it should have been a killing blow. The, the, the rock landed on top of of Aeneas and, and crushed him, pinned him to the ground. It should have been internal injury death for sure. But at this point, Aphrodite, um, watching up from Mount Olympus, seeing her son in obviously some degree of critical and mortal trauma, ha had flown down and, and done that thing that the gods could all do with the mist. She had clothed Aeneas in mist, which made it absolutely impossible for Diomedes to come in, find Aeneas, and, and, and finish off his prey if Aeneas had any life left in him. And, and that should have been the end of the matter, except Diomedes, in, in such a rage, uh, so deeply immersed in this moment of excellence and glory, his Aristea, Diomedes had decided, well, if I can't find Aeneas, I'll go after Aphrodite herself. So Diomedes had actually hurled his spear at the goddess of everything south of the waste and managed to actually hit Aphrodite with the spear and draw, well, I was going to say blood, but uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Olympian deities didn't bleed red human blood. They, they had a substance in their body, which apparently was a, a golden liquid color. It was, it was called ichor. It was apparently what gave them their immortality. But uh, Diomedes' spear actually cut Aphrodite on the wrist and, and, and golden ichor flowed out of her veins. And, and Aphrodite, of course, not much of a fighter really, and, and not much of a parent either, had immediately, the minute she had received this tiny little scratch flush wound, had, had abandoned poor, her poor son and there in the battlefield under his cloud of mist and gone running all the way back up to Mount Olympus where she had thrown herself into the great hall of the Olympian gods, burst into tears and, and, and complained about her, her, her flesh wound. And, and at this point, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's very hard to not think that, well, Homer is obviously having a great deal of fun with his parallels here because, well, Aphrodite behaves exactly as Paris behaves uh, earlier in, well, in the preceding episode when Paris is, is hit by a minor scratch with with uh, with a javelin. Paris immediately uh, goes faint and, and, and panics. He's never, even a mere scratch is enough to throw Paris off of his game. And now here, a goddess with a mere scratch is doing the same thing. And, and Paris and Aphrodite clearly have an awful lot in common. Uh, one's a deity, one's a human, but they're both vacuous, self-absorbed and shallow. And they do their best work, not in the battlefield, but in the bedroom. 
Well, at this stage, uh, Aeneas still covered in a shroud of protective mist. The god Apollo, who was also supporting the Trojans in this war, stepped in to try to uh, pick up Aeneas and, and bring Aeneas back up to Mount Olympus and provide a little bit of healing power so that Aeneas would live. It was absolutely critical. The uh, the gods knew fate had destined that Aeneas had some future role to play, which I can't tell you about now for fear of plot spoilers, but it, it was critical to the history of this and other epics that Aeneas stay alive. And and consequently, Apollo went down to protect Aeneas and to, uh, to bring him back up to Mount Olympus for some sort of healing injury to make up for the crushed torso and the rock on top of him. But when Diomedes saw Apollo there standing over Aeneas, uh, Diomedes, uh, still in his Aristia, had begun to thrust at Apollo, a major Olympian god, and no slouch in battle. And Diomedes had repeatedly charged at Apollo until Apollo, finally growing tired of the sport, had enveloped himself and Aeneas in a thick layer of mist and brought Aeneas up to Mount Olympus for, for some serious Olympian surgery that restored Aeneas to full and complete health. But Diomedes wasn't done. He went scourging and raging through the battlefield, looking for other other opponents that he could fight, other opponents worthy of uh, of his day of Aristia. And, and finally, he found well the ultimate uber opponent that any human being who who was flushed on on Aristia would be delighted to come up against. Their fighting in the battlefield was the Olympian god of war himself, uh, Ares, the uh, not Aphrodite, a, a, a mediocre god and no fighter at all, but Ares, the freaking god of war. And and Ares helping the Trojans was wrecking havoc in the Greeks until, of course, down. Diomedes approached. Uh, Ares saw Diomedes out of the corner of his eye, lodged a spear, which Diomedes easily brushed aside. And then Diomedes had thrust his spear deep into the bowels and the entrails and the gut of Ares, the god of war himself. Well, Ares had let out a mighty and, and, and heroic and agonized scream, which silenced and, and frightened everybody in the battlefield. And then Ares, the god of war, injured by Omides, had had gone running back up to Mount Olympus, complaining about this man and whatever Athena ha- had given him for breakfast that morning. And 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 that was Diomedes' day, and he wasn't done yet. But by this stage, I, I want to step away from from the individual, the story of Diomedes and his Aristia, and take a look at what Diomedes and his efforts are doing inside of the the larger battle of the 100,000 men against the 75,000 men. And clearly what was happening here, ladies and gentlemen, is that, well, when you have a champion in the foremost ranks like Diomedes, it does incredible things to the confidence of the adrenaline of of the side that he's fighting for. And, and it robs the other side of any hope of victory. And as Hector, who was fighting in the foremost of the Trojan ranks, was was watching what was happening to his soldiers, it became very, very clear to Hector that the Trojan forces were in some serious trouble. Uh, Gradually and inexorably, they were being pushed back towards the walls of Troy. And as Hector watched, he recognized that, uh, well, the greatest danger any army ever faces is when it it suddenly is overcome by panic, uh, turned tail and and, and runs, because that's when, when armies are most easily picked off by pursuing enemies. So Hector knew that he needed to do something to turn the tides of battle and his best efforts out there alone fighting and obviously clearly the best efforts of even Apollo, Ares and Aphrodite were insufficient to help the Trojan forces. So Hector made a calculated decision. He decided that he needed the help of other deities. So so Hector had temporarily abandoned the battlefield and rushed at a full sprint back inside the walls of the Troy up to the palace where he had found his mother Queen Hecuba and her ladies in waiting and and Hector returned to 
Hecuban said, look, we're, we're in trouble down there. We need to get some of the serious Olympian deities fighting on our side. And, and, and Hector had instructed Hecuba to, to gather the, the most valuable of the Trojan gifts and, and treasure and presents remaining inside of the city and, and have all the women of Troy bring the very best that they could to the largest temple, to the, to the god which the Trojans worshipped the most. And, and hope that if they brought the treasure there, that god might shine down on Troy's fortunes. And, and, and sadly, regrettably, and bitterly, ironically for Hector and the Trojans, of course, the god which the Trojans up until this war had worshipped the most and thought was their friend was the goddess Athena herself. So, so the Trojan women loaded up all of their glorious treasure, brought all the wonderful treasure to the temple of Athena, laid the treasure at the statue of the goddess Athena, and, and hoped that this might turn the tide of battle down in the battlefield. And, and unbeknownst, of course, to the Trojans, Athena had thrown in her lot with the Greeks, and their treasure was wasted there. And their treasure, which might have got some other Olympian deity onto the Trojan plane on the Trojan side, well, that, that treasure was spent on a, on a deity that wanted nothing more than to bring the city of Troy to the ground and, and burn it then. So that was Hector's efforts inside the city. Now, meanwhile, back out on the plains, Diomedes had found a new combatant to fight. And Diomedes, uh, wading his way through Trojan soldiers to kill, had, had, had recognized out of the corner of his eye that there was a Trojan hero, a Trojan warlord, who was obviously a supremely gifted fighter, who was wrecking a significant havoc on Greek forces. And, and, and this was a kind of moment that warlord heroes in both sides lived for an opportunity to to not summarily dispatch of rank and file foot soldiers that really couldn't put up much of a fight but rather to really test their mettle and their courage and their and, and their warlike prowess against a worthy combatant on the other side so uh, Diomedes recognizing that this Trojan looked like a worthy combatant had bellowed out a war cry and then challenged this Trojan combatant to trial by single champion to the death and the moment that, of course, Diomedes did this, well, a hush fell over the battlefield and and a huge circle spread uh, of, of foot soldiers, Greek and Trojan foot soldiers, to allow Diomedes and this Trojan champion to fight it out and have lots of room to move. Now, these were very, very, very stylized moments of combat that happened during the course of a day's fighting. And the Trojan soldiers and the Greek soldiers, the foot soldiers, absolutely adored these moments of stylized combat. And I think for two reasons. Uh, from a strictly practical point of view, well, when these stylized fights would happen, the Greeks and the Trojan soldiers, the foot soldiers, would temporarily lay down their weapons, sit down, and, and they'd get to watch. So it provided them with a respite, a, a breather inside of an otherwise horrifically long day of fighting. But then there was just just, well, frankly, the sheer joy of watching two combatants equally balanced going at it. It, it, it was it, fun to watch. And, and as a consequence, whenever one of these trials by single champion would be announced in the middle of the proceedings in a battlefield, a, a calm and a hush would fall over the battlefield. A huge ring of soldiers on both sides would spread between the, around the two champions. And, and then they'd step forward and, and they'd announce their names. And and there was a reason for announcing names. You, you, you could win great glory as a warrior in one of these fights, but you won a great amount of glory and proportional amounts of glory dependent upon who it was you were fighting and how glorious they were. So clearly, killing a foot soldier gave you a nominal amount of glory. But if you could kill some badass warrior from the other side, well, that was serious, serious bankable glory. And so 
every one of these trials by single champion in the battlefield would would open with the two champions formally introducing themselves and if you will presenting their CVs uh, saying well here's who I am here's who my dad is here, here's where I fought here are the enemies I vanquished so far and, and that way you'd have a good sense of the relative merits of the guy you were fighting against and if you won you'd have a better sense of what you were allowed to brag about uh, because of that guy's uh, particular resume and, and how glorious he was so so Diomedes had stepped forward and he had boldly announced to the Trojan fighter he said my name is Diomedes I am the son of Tydeus of the island of Argos and and Diomedes had then turned around after he had announced this. Uh, he turned around and waited for the Trojan to announce himself. And, and, and the Trojan combatant had stepped forward and, and essentially done the very same thing. He proceeded into a very, very, very long speech. He, he instead of just saying, here's who I am, here's where I'm from, he said, allow me to give you a little bit of the background just so you recognize how worthy and heroic and a noble opponent you are going to be fighting, Diomedes. And, and the Trojan soldier had gone on back multiple generations. Here was my grandfather, here's my great-grandfather, and my grandfather fought here and he did this to this group of people and then my father who was glorious fought here and, and and he did to this group of people and here's how many people he killed and here's how many slaves he took and 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 he went down and on and on and on with his resume for some time before he eventually got to himself and then he turned around and he said and my name is Glaucus I am the son of Hippolychus of the kingdom of Lycia and then the strangest thing happened the moment that Glaucus identified himself Diomedes burst into a huge grin, immediately threw his weapons down to one side, threw off his helmet and began to laugh and cheer. And then he turned around to be amused to Glaucus and he said, hey, Glaucus, brother, it's Diomedes. Glaucus, we can't fight together. Glaucus, we're family. And, and, and Glaucus, still not quite sure who this was, had turned around and said, tell me more, tell me more. And Diomedes had gone on to explain. He said, our great-grandfathers, I, I remember hearing about this from my father, who heard it from his father, who heard it from his father. Our, our great-grandfathers, way, way back in the day, they, they, they entered into a guest-host relationship. Your great-grandfather entertained my great-grandfather, Glaucus. He gave him wonderful gifts. They had a great time together. Our grandfathers, they, they visited each other's city. They shared gifts. Glaucus, we we are family. We have entered into a pact of Zania. Glaucus, we cannot fight with each other. We are brothers here in this battlefield. And, and, and ladies and gentlemen, you'll remember way, way back episodes ago when I talked about Paris and Menelaus entering into this, this family relationship, this guest host relationship of Zania and how Menelaus had entered into it with Paris. And then Paris had so grossly violated this guest host relationship, of course, by, well, running off with his brother Menelaus's wife, which is fairly severe violation of any form of hospitality, which most of us accord to our male friends. Well, the, the same pattern repeated itself here. And, and, and so Glaucus and Diomedes thrilled to death, uh, about to have killed each other, instead stepped forward, gave each other huge man hugs, talked a little bit about their family background, and, and, and then they recognized, of course, that there was a problem. Di Diomedes was still, well, in the middle of his aristia. He was still hopped up on, on whatever it was Athena had given him, and Diomedes wanted to continue killing. He was having an absolutely wonderful time that day, and, and Glaucus was doing pretty well for himself. So uh, the two of them confronting the practical problem had turned around, and Diomedes had said, well, look, Glaucus, take a look around. There's thousands of guys in this battlefield for, for each of us. So 
they cut a deal with uh, they they cut a deal with each other. Diomedes would would continue to kill Trojans, just not Glaucus, and Glaucus would continue to have a final time killing Greeks, just not Diomedes. And and then they agreed that if the war ended and they were both you know if fate allowed them both to be alive at the end of the war, Diomedes extended an invitation and said, Glaucus, I've got a great place back at Argos. Come visit. I will give you gifts. I will feast you mightily. And and Glaucus had turned around and said, and I will do the same in my kingdom, a noble Greek brother, if if the two of us managed to survive this war. And and, and then the moment of trial by single champion was over and, and the fighting began. The foot soldiers picked up their weapons. They all cheered. This had been exciting and heartwarming. And then they got down to the business of killing and dying once again. Well, I'd like to take you back inside of inside of the city um, and and follow what Hector has been doing. Obviously, his his efforts to to invoke the support of the goddess Athena are wasted. Diomedes is continuing on his rampage, but Hector at this stage inside of the city decided that before he returned and began to fight again, he he, he wanted to he wanted to sneak off for a quick visit with with his wife and with his infant son. And ladies and gentlemen, this is something that I can never help but be touched by when I'm when I'm reading Homer's Iliad and I'm reading the stories in this section of the Trojan War epic. And, and that's the realization that hits me that there's a fundamental difference between what's happening inside of the Trojan ranks and the fighting men and inside of the Greek fighting ranks. And the fundamental difference isn't something that you notice on the battlefield where they're both engaged in the same sort of weapons and they're both fighting and they're both killing and dying the same way, but it's it's their lives off the battlefield, which are so profoundly and profoundly and deeply different. And you have to think about it. Troy, Troy was until the Greeks arrived, a city under in peace, and 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 Hector was was the heir apparent to that city. And and, and then when the Greeks arrived in their beach, well, suddenly Troy was a city at war. And and you, it's strange to imagine what it must have been like for the Trojan foot soldiers, because. Every day they would go out and fight, but then every night they'd come home from their days fighting when it grew too dark to fight. And well, then they were suddenly confronted by family. They, these Trojan foot soldiers who did the fighting, they, they had parents inside of the city, elderly parents who, who would worry about them all day long when they were out fighting and stand on the battlements and try to catch a glimpse of their poor son and hope he would come home. And, and, and most of these foot soldiers had wives and kids inside of the city too. So you'd, if you, if you were a Trojan, the, the full, the full poignancy of war was available all the time because after you, you knew every night when you got home, if you were still alive, precisely what it was you were killing and dying for, because it, it was your family and they were right there in the household with you. Your, your, your kids happy to see you again, your younger children fused and not certain what it was that daddy was doing all day, your wife hysterically afraid or, or doing her best to keep a stiff upper lip. And, and, and you'd have to juggle all of these family responsibilities with, with then the reality of going out and having to kill and die. And it was so different over in the Greek side. The the Greeks, of course, were living in a tent city and they were surrounded by by nothing but other soldiers who were there for only one purpose, which was to kill and die. And uh, of course, the Greeks had family, but their family were way back across the Aegean Sea and they hadn't seen their family for 10 years. So certainly the Greeks, if they got through this war alive and they actually managed to win this war, which is still very much in doubt, well, if the Greeks did make it home, there would be there would be homecomings to deal with and there would be families to deal with. And, and, and there would be a whole lot of unresolved family issues that build up for 10 years when you're away from home to deal with. But the Greeks, when they were actually on the beach, could singularly dedicate themselves to the business of warfare. Whereas a Trojan soldier, he was a Trojan soldier by day, but then by night when he came back inside of the city, well, 
Well, his kid might have a cough. Uh, he might get kept awake by his kid with a bad cough. Or his wife, his wife might be short on food and said, could you go get some food from somebody else? Our family is starving. Or, or his elderly parents, he might have to calm them and soothe them and assure them that everything would be fine. Or there might be some sort of a domestic fight or something like that because tensions inside of the city, of course, would have been at a at a breaking point 10 years into this war. And, and it's hard to really tell then, folks, I don't know. Who, who, had, the, who had the upper hand? Who, is this a psychological, who has a psychological advantage in a situation like this? The Trojans who know desperately and very clearly what they're fighting for and, and can see their wives and their kids who they know will be murdered, butchered, raped, or enslaved if they lose. Uh, does that give the Trojans an advantage? Or, or not seeing those people and not being close to those people, does that give the Greeks an advantage? And I guess we'll never really know. But the, the two armies and the soldiers in those armies faced completely, completely different conditions and a completely different series of psychological effects as they, as they put on their armor and went into battle each day. And, and no more so than Hector, because, well, well Hector, was, Hector was Troy. He was the king of that city, um, old man Priam was a, was a tired old man. He was he was a gentle man. He was a, a man with great dignity and and honor. But Priam was now in his late seventies, and his abilities to run the army and his his executive function at times was not what it was ten or fifteen years earlier. So so Hector was the de facto king of Troy when it came to all major policy and leadership decisions. Uh, Hector had to be the the chief diplomat of Troy, making all the the decisions on on strategy and negotiations when when it came to talk talking to the Greeks. Uh, Hector, of course, was the commander-in-chief of the army. He was a general. He had to figure out the military tactics and strategies of every one of his men on the battlefield. And, and then, of course, when push came to shove, Hector was actually the foremost warrior and fighter inside of the Trojan ranks. He was he was their hero. So Hector really was Troy's everything. And and he, he had to do that and do that all day long. And, and, and then, of course, Hector was, well, the everything of his wife and his son. And maybe I'll stop and tell you the story about about Hector's wife. Her, her name was Andromaca. We know an awful lot about her, actually. Andromaca was a princess. She had come to the, the city of Troy sometime after Achilles had sacked her own city. Now, Andromaca's city, the, the city that Achilles had sacked, had been, had been a Trojan ally uh, going into this war. The name of the city was Thebes. And and Thebes had been a great help to Troy in the early days until Achilles had begun his one-man scourge of the Mediterranean over the last 10 years. And during Achilles' scourge of the Mediterranean, he had actually put the city of Thebes to the sword. And, and Andromaca, though she had managed to somehow escape and make it back to Troy, where she met Hector and the two of them fell in love and married, well, Andromaca was, was a woman who carried scars of the war inside of her own psyche. Andromaca had witnessed her father killed by in battle by Achilles. Uh, Andromaca did not know where her mother was. Achilles had captured her and sold her off somewhere into slavery. And and Andromaca had, had seen Achilles butcher her seven brothers who had been unarmed and outside of the palace and caught by surprise when the Greeks and Achilles had landed. And, and so Andromaca now literally back inside of the walls of Troy uh, on their wedding day, turned to, turned to her husband, Hector, and said, uh, Hector, her husband, you, you, are my, you are my father, you are my brother, you are my husband, you, you are all the family that I have, Hector. Hector, you are my everything. And, and Hector really was not only Andromachus' everything, he was Troy's everything by that stage 10 years into this war. Uh, well, Hector couldn't resist seeing Andromache before he went out to fight. So he had, he had left he had left his mother and the ladies praying at the Temple of Athena and had rushed to the ladies' quarters where he had found Andromache, stepped into the room, and and there she was, his wife, the love of his life. Uh, 
tenderly holding in her arms their baby prince, a, a boy less than a year old, a, a little a little infant son named Astyanax. Uh, it, it had been Hector's idea to name the kid Astyanax. Uh, it actually meant Lord of the City. And of course, well, when, when Priam died and, and then Hector assumed kingship, and then when Hector grew old and he died, well, Astyanax was next in line to the throne if Troy managed to survive the onslaught of the Greeks and the city didn't burn to the ground in the process. So Hector stopped. He, he, he went into, into the ladies' quarters. He, he found his wife Andromache. The two of them, the two of them hugged. Uh, Andromache asked about the war and Hector confessed to her that the Trojans were in some trouble. He could only stay for a few moments and then he had to go out and rally the Trojans. But he wanted, he wanted to see his son again. So, so Hector in full bloody battle armor with his huge helmet still on had turned around and, and had gone to pick up his baby boy, Astynax, who had who had seen, and you have to imagine this from the perspective of an infant's eyes, had looked up from his mother's arms and suddenly seen this fearsome-looking bronze-helmeted creature with a huge, fiery red horsehair plume with blood dripping off of it. And Astynax, instead of leaping gratefully into his dad's arm, had screamed in, in terror and fear at the sight of this helmeted man uh, leaning over him and, and maybe... Without giving away any plot spoilers, there's a little bit of prescience to the fear of the infant child, and we'll save that for some later episodes later before we get into that. But 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 poor Steinax had, had screamed in terror, and, and Andromache, recognizing what the problem was, had gently gone over, removed her husband Hector's helmet, and, and, and then Steinax had relaxed, smiled and giggled, and realized it was just Daddy under the silly costume, and, and Hector had got a chance to pick up and play with his son for a few moments, smile, and, and, and then Hector, recognizing that he was torn. The longer he spent with Andromache and Steinax, the, uh, the worse the situation was going to be out there in the plains of Troy. So Hector had turned around. He had handed his Steinax back to mom, turned to Andromache and, and, and said, I have to go now. I have to, I, I have to go buck up the forces of the Trojans. I, I, I don't, Diomedes is wrecking havoc on us today. I, I need to be back in the battlefield. And well, the inevitable had happened. And Andromache, a wife who had nothing left in this world, but her husband had turned and reminded Hector of what would happen, of course, if Troy fell and what would happen to her and what would happen to a Steinax. And she said, you know, I, I will, I will be, I will be raped and enslaved. I'll become, I'll become the whore of some, some Greek warlord and, and, and Steinax will be thrown from the battlements of this city as an heir to the throne. And please stay, Hector, don't go out and fight. And Hector had turned and explained that the reason he had to go out to fight was just so those things didn't happen. And, and Hector tried to provide reassuring words for his wife. He turned around and, but the best words he'd come up with, the best reassurance he could come up with was he had turned Andromache and holding her close had said, uh, don't worry Andromache, no man will send me to Hades before my time. But they were cold comfort because of course Hector, nor Andromache, nor anybody else knew when Hector's time would be. Well, he said his goodbyes, he put on the fearsome helmet and Hector walked away back out onto the plains of Troy, leaving his wife Andromache standing and weeping inconsolably, holding on to her child and fearing for the worst. Well, back out on the plains of Troy, Hector's worst fears had come true. And as he looked at the Trojan soldiers, he recognized that they had lost a, uh, they had lost another huge chunk of ground in his absence from the battle. That Diomedes was continuing to to wreak havoc on the Trojans, and and you can just get a sense if you were a general with the skill set and the veteran experience of Hector that his men were within five to ten minutes of of an out and out turning tail and panicking, and then it would be a rout of the Trojan army, and everything would be lost. The war would be over. So. 
Hector recognized that now was the time for desperate actions. He needed to do something to restore and calm his Trojan soldiers and to buy some time from the, the wrecking crew and the havoc that was Diomedes. So, uh, so Hector grabbed his sword, grabbed his shield, grabbed his fearsome javelin, stepped into the thick of the fighting, and then Hector, Prince of Troy, let out a bellow of a war cry, which stopped and froze everybody on the battlefield. And then Hector issued a challenge. Belting it out at the top of his lungs, he announced, I am Hector, Prince of Troy, the greatest fighter on this battlefield today. And I challenge any Greek warlord to trial by single champion combat to the death. Is there a man inside of the Greek army who is man enough to face me, Hector? And then Hector stopped. He waited a moment and, well, the inevitable happened. Uh, I told you that these fights were highly ritualized and the moment that a, a, a contest had been challenged, the minute that, the minute that a, one of the heroes had issued a challenge, well, immediately the foot soldiers on either side who were doing the killing and the dying were more than happy to stop their killing and dying for a brief respite and, and, and see if somebody would take up the challenge on the other side and, and they'd get a break from the fighting. And this is exactly what Hector was hoping would happen. He was hoping that the Greeks would put down their weapons. The, uh, the Trojan boys, instead of running, would put down their weapons. They'd, they'd form a huge circle. And Hector knew that if he could just buy some time in single combat, well, he looked at the sky. He knew he had about an hour until dark, maybe an hour and a half at most. If he could buy some time, well, if he could hold off on dark without his boys running and panicking and fleeing to the walls, then, well, uh, Troy's army would live to fight another day. So Hector stood there and he he bellowed out his challenge again. He he announced his credentials. He talked about what a great warrior he was. He, he questioned questioned the manhood and the courage of every possible Greek warlord inside of the army. And, and then standing there as a huge empty space opened up around him, he waited for a Greek to come forward and accept the challenge. Well, Hector's strategy worked even better than Hector could have hoped or calculated it would because after he issued the challenge and silence fell onto the battlefield and the rank and file soldiers on both sides put down their weapons, well, no Greek champion actually stepped forward to accept the challenge. Uh, and an awkward, long span of time passed. And, and during that span of time, of course, there were plenty of Greek champions in the vicinity. They had all been drawn close by Hector's war cry. But now the Greek champions to a man were, well, shuffling their feet and kind of looking at their feet and desperately, desperately hoping that some other Greek warlord would step forward, accept the challenge. And then, of course, uh, knowing Hector's credentials in battle, that meant that some other Greek warlord would die at the hands of Hector. There, uh, the truth of the matter was, there wasn't a Greek who wanted to have anything to do with Hector in, in, in a fight single champion to the death. Hector just had that fearsome a resume. The general consensus inside of everybody on both sides in the war was that the only man who, who could best Hector in single combat was Achilles. And of course, Achilles was not fighting. He was still way down in the end of his tent playing his lyre and having absolutely nothing to do with this war. His his honor had not yet been restored. And, and as a consequence, well, the gap went on for a considerably long amount of time. And Hector bellowed out his challenge again and finally in embarrassment recognizing that well this cast a pretty gloomy uh, outlook onto the Greek forces if not a single man was willing to man up and fight Hector well well Menelaus of all people stepped forward shrugged and said well somebody has to do it this is an embarrassment and Menelaus had stepped forward began to don his armor and said I Menelaus will fight you Hector and of course 
well, I have to give Menelaus credit. This Menelaus obviously deeply cared about things like honor, enough that he was willing to die for it. Because if if Menelaus actually had had to confront Hector in battle, it would have been a very quick two-minute fight before Menelaus would have been dead on the ground. Uh, Menelaus could easily best somebody like Paris in combat, but well, uh, there was a little bit of a difference between the between the older brother and the and the younger brother when it came to to fighting. And Hector would have well, Hector would have done to Menelaus what Menelaus could have done to Paris. It was as simple as that. Well, as Menelaus was donning his armor, of course, Agamemnon, Menelaus's big brother, had turned around and bellowed out an order. He said, brother, are you a fool? He'll, he'll kill you. You don't have a chance. And Agamemnon had issued a direct order to Menelaus. He said, stand down, Menelaus. Stand down, brother. Take off your armor. And, and well, Menelaus was only more than happy to obey a direct command from the commander-in-chief and king of kings of Operation Trojan Storm. Menelaus stepped back in a hurry. And, and, and in doing so, he had won himself glory points without ever like, actually having to die for those points. But uh, but but then the silence continued, and, and then the best thing that Hector could have hoped for actually happened in terms of a stall and delay tactic, and that was that the old geriatric warrior king, Nestor, the Nestor, the man I mentioned before, Nestor of the very long and windy rambling speeches that went on and on and on before they got to the point. Well, Nestor chose this particular moment to step forward and to, well, launch into an epically long speech, chastising the Greek forces for their for their cowardice and refusing to fight Hector. And the speech went on and on and on. And it cited historical precedent and previous battles and, and the personal resume of, well, Nestor's personal resume or what he remembered of his personal resume of his glory days. And after about 20 minutes of haranguing the Greek warlords for their sheer cowardice, uh, Nestor got to the thesis, which was that he only wished he was a younger man because if he were a younger man, he'd put on the armor himself and he would give that Hector a whooping for the ages. But, uh, but then Nestor had turned around and, and finally finished his speech and, and Hector looked at the sky and realized he was down to only about 45 minutes before sunset and uh, thanked the gods for, ne- for Nestor and his speeches. But but whatever it was that Nestor did must have actually worked because at that point, uh, well, instead of one Greek warlord finally being shamed into stepping forward, Nestor's speech worked and, and the opposite problem happened. Nine Greek warlords stepped forward, all shamed now into fighting. And, and then an argument broke out among the nine warlords over who was going to get to have to fight Hector and who was going to get the honor of fighting and likely dying at the hands of Hector. And, and that bought more time for the Trojans to recover and relax. And, and Hector waited, and eventually the Trojans decided that they'd decide this by drawing straws. And after they had figured out how they'd do that, they drew straws. And the champion that was chosen for the Greeks was none other than Ajax, the, the bulwark of the Greeks, and, and next to Achilles, certainly the most fearsome of the Greek fighters. And Hector recognized this was a, was a double blessing. Uh, if he had have had to fight Menelaus, well, that would have only bought five minutes for Hector before Menelaus lay dead. The problem with fighting Ajax, of course, was that Hector recognized there's a very good chance that the fight would go on for some time, but at the end of it, it might be Hector lying dead on the battlefield. Ajax was that good. Uh, But then, of course, there was more time to kill because... Well, Ajax needed to rearm. He needed to put his mighty bronze armor back on. And then the priests had to come in and declare the rules of these contests. And I, I have to spend a few moments here, folks, on the rules of these contests, because I told you they were highly, highly stylized, even when they happened in real time in the battlefield. And the terms of what was being fought for had to be agreed to in advance. Uh, the, the way this percolates down through the modern time period, I guess, is our, our current efforts in our current centuries at some form of rules of war. And, and, and so an awful lot of the time in the battlefield 
fields of the Trojan War epic, the, uh, the rules of the particular combat were, were hammered out in advance by the priests and then agreed to, and appropriate curses cast onto either of the combatants who broke the rules. And, and in this particular combat, the rules that were agreed to were the standard rules of combat during a fight. And the rules were as simple as this. The, uh, the two men would fight to the death. And then the man who won, the victor, would be allowed to strip the dead man of the dead man's armor. And, and the victor would be free to take the armor back as his prize of war. Now, the armor, of course, was ridiculously expensive. These warlords were clad in only the best armor. So this was not only a monetary cash value prize, but it also meant that, you know, if you won the war and you had the suit of a fearsome warrior you had killed, you, you could bring that, that suit of armor back to your palace and, and, and hang it in your throne room as an, as, as an epic reminder of the honor you'd won by killing that man. So uh, the rules of the contest were very clear. Uh, the, the men's armor could be stripped by the glorious uh, man who won the contest, but the rules were also clear that then the man who died, his body was not to be mutilated, violated, or desecrated. The body was not to be left on the field for the dogs and the birds and the vultures to mutilate, but rather the body was to be returned with all proper respect to the family of the dead warrior so that the dead warrior could be given a, a proper burial and go in peace to the afterlife. And and folks, we don't know an awful lot about Greek and Trojan concepts of the afterlife. It's, it's a little bit vague on what happened. They believed in some form of an afterlife, not certainly anything like any modern day 21st century theists uh, would believe in. But But the afterlife they believed in was clearly made much more wonderful if you you were given a proper burial ceremony when you died and clearly your life in the afterlife was made much much worse if uh, somehow you were left in the battlefield for the dogs and the birds of prey to mutilate your corpse so respecting the body of the dead man was a standard rule inside of both of these cultures you did not mutilate the dead that was beyond the pale it was uh, you could kill the guy as violently as you wanted to but once he was dead well then you treated the corpse with some degree of respect that was just the rules of war so, so the priests announced these rules of war. Um, Ajax, the Greek champion, Hector, uh, the Trojan champion, agreed upon the rules of war. And, and, and then Hector recognized, I, I've stalled as long as I can. Now I actually have to get down to the business of fighting this fearsome guy, Ajax. And Hector looked up and he realized it'd be the last time he'd be have time or breathing space to look up. And he knew he had a good 30 minutes and he was going to have to hang on before darkness fell and, and his Trojans would be able to effect a, a safe and, and organized retreat back inside the walls of the city. So well, Ajax and Hector had at it. Uh, they started with spears. Uh, they always start with spears. They threw their spears, but neither of the men was injured by the spear throws. They were both too expert with their with their shields to be damaged by spears. And and then it was swords, and they fought with swords until inevitably, of course, the swords snapped off at the hilt. And and then it was onto rocks, fists, and feet. And 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 the fight went on for a good 30 minutes and it looked as though the fight could have gone on much longer than that because well the fact of the matter was that Hector and Ajax were equally matched combatants and so at, at times it looked as though this was going to be a, a 12 round split decision outcome sort of fight and and eventually after it went on and on and on with mercifully neither man actually being badly wounded inside of the fighting well eventually the Trojan and the Greek priests who were governing the combat looked to each other they nodded and, and they stepped in and they broke the fight up they declared the fight a draw. They announced that both Ajax and Hector were noble, worthy combatants, that there was nothing to distinguish between them. There was no winner. And then the priest turned around and said, and night falls and we have to defer tonight. We have to accept that the day's fighting is over. It, it is time to put an end to it. And Hector and Ajax actually exchanged valuable gifts and they departed, well, the Iliad says, as friends. 
Well, Ajax and Glory led the, the Greek forces back to the Greek lines and, and, and they laid out a huge barbecue to celebrate what had clearly been a, a glorious day of Greek victory on the battlefield. One more day like this and, well, the Trojan forces would be routed and destroyed forever. And, and Hector, much to his relief, managed to lead an orderly march back to Troy. No panicked hell retreat back inside of the walls. And Hector got his soldiers back inside of the walls. Uh, he instructed them to have hot baths. The armorers went to work in sharpening the weapons. Uh, the quartermaster made sure that the Trojan soldiers were fed well and Hector said, sleep boys, tomorrow's a new day and who knows which God will favor which combatant on this day. Uh, we might be ascendant tomorrow, boys. And having done all the things that Hector had to do, had one more thing to do before he could retire for the night. And his warlord helmet off, Hector put on his diplomat hat and sent messages across to the Greek line. Hector asked if the Greeks would entertain a one-day truce in the fighting so that firewood could be gathered up from Mount Ida and that the dead could be properly buried and burned. And, and of course, this was a necessity on the battlefield, but Hector also knew if the Greeks agreed to these terms, it would buy him another 24 hours before he had to bring his boys out to fight again. Well, the diplomats on the Greek side, flushed with glory and recognizing that they too needed to burn their dead, agreed to the terms. And so, and so a truce was declared. All combatants on both sides slept peacefully that night. Hector showered, he washed, he took off his heavy armor, he looked in on his infant son and Steinax sleeping peacefully and innocently inside of the little baby's room. And then Hector crawled into bed beside his wife and fell asleep in the arms of his loving and lovely wife Andromaca. A good day's work for the Prince of Troy. Well, the next morning, the Trojan and the Greek foot soldiers under a flag of truce uh, mutually gathered firewood up on the slopes of Mount Ida. They, they brought the firewood back and two massively long funeral pyres were erected on the, on the Trojan plain and on the Trojan beach. And on one of those funeral pyres, the dead, the thousands of Trojan dead, the unnamed dead were piled up on top of that funeral pyre. And on the other pyre at the other end of the beach, the thousands and thousands of Greek soldiers, the unnamed dead of the Greeks were piled up onto that funeral pyre and then then the wood was lit the, the the fire burned and the smell of roasting cremating dead bodies of of men who had just lived the other day uh, permeated the battlefield for the next 24 hours well, the day after the truce, of course, dawn came. Hector assembled his forces. He, he called the Trojan boys together inside the walls and said, we're in this now. We, we're out of food. We have to go fight, boys, and, and be of good cheer. And Athena clearly uh, imbued Diomedes with uh, his Aristea the last time we fought, but you never know which god will imbue which warrior on either side today. We've done what we can with the sacrifices, boy. Every day, boys, every day is a new day. And Hector confidently, and, and from the front, because Hector was always a leader that fought from the front ranks, marked to soldiers outside the walls towards the Greek lines. And that day, Hector turned out to have been prescient because Zeus, uh, looking down from Mount Olympus, had decided that this was the day when he would honor the request of Thetis, the sea nymph. And this was the day Zeus decided that he would grant Hector his glory, that he would grant Trojan ascendancy on the battlefield, and that he would grant Achilles' prayer that the Greeks would die in the tens of thousands. And this was the day Zeus decreed that by the end of the day, the Greek forces would come to regret having ever dishonored Achilles and would recognize how badly they needed Achilles in their army. So no warriors were imbued with Aristea that particular day, but the Trojans were imbued with a general confidence and and, and that they could not lose. And as the Trojans marched across the plains, the Greeks who now, well, maybe the full effects of the flu and without the help of Diomedes there at their side, well, the Greeks began to retreat. And, 
And it was really a mirror image of what had happened the day before. By nightfall, the Greeks were backed up against their tents and, and, and looking with half an eye at their fleet, which the Trojans are very close to destroying. And the Greeks recognized that, well, if the Trojans actually managed to burn the Greek ships, the Greeks would have no way of getting home if worse came to worst and no way of provisioning their army, even if they did manage to survive. And well, the only thing that actually saved an army that day was again nightfall, only this time it was nightfall that saved the Greek army. It, it finally got so dark that Hector recognized I, there's no point continuing to fight. Trojans will kill each other and not Greeks. And so Hector had blown the, the, the trumpet calls of retreat and the, and the Trojans had stepped away from the panicked Greek lines who were backed up right against the beach in their boats themselves. Now, so confident was Hector that night of victory that Hector didn't even bring his soldiers back inside of the city. He he, he told the boys, he said, guys, there's a chance that the Greeks will likely want to escape in the night. And if the Greeks make for their ships to sail away from Troy in the night, well, boys, I want to put as many spears and arrows into their backs as we can as they run away because I don't want them ever thinking about returning to Troy again. So the Trojans actually camped out on the open plain, built huge bonfires and watch fires to keep a, a close eye on what the Greeks were doing that night. And, and then the Trojan soldiers, confident that victory in the morning would certainly be theirs, uh, settled down for a good night's sleep. And a calm descended over the Trojan battlefield. And the only place where there wasn't calm, of course, was inside of the command tent of Agamemnon, king of kings, because he and the other Greek warlords assembled and recognized that this was the most perilous hour in the entire in the entire siege of Troy. This was decision time, and the decisions that were going to be made in that tent of Agamemnon tonight were going to determine the outcome one way or another of this entire Operation Trojan Storm. And the decisions that night that were going to be made by Agamemnon and his warlords, ladies and gentlemen, were so pivotal in well, events to be coming that were going to happen the next morning that they're clearly decisions to be accounted in episode 14 of Trojan War, the podcast. So we will leave things here. Um, I, I hope you had enjoyed listening to episode 13 of uh, Trojan War, the podcast, uh, uh, the episode titled Terrible glorious war. And and now, of course, you have your standard options. If you're wanting to just find out what happens inside of the command tent of Agamemnon, King of Kings, and clearly you'll want to get over to the website as quickly as possible, uh, trojanwarpodcast.com, where the next episode will be waiting for you or in your inbox any day now soon. And for those of you who are curious in the post-story commentary, I'm going to dedicate the commentary to talking a little bit more about this idea of Aristia and, and how this worked in the battlefield. Draw some contemporary parallels. Look at how Aristia works in in such modern epics as, well, Avengers movies or Lord of the Rings and that sort of thing. And then I'm going to spend some time getting into attitudes towards war as they appear in the Trojan War epic and specifically inside of Homer's Iliad. I'm going to look at Homer's treatment of war, read you some little passages which are are quite horrifying and quite edifying from the Iliad itself, and we'll get a discussion on how our attitudes towards war have changed from Homer's time and how our attitudes towards war in many ways haven't moved one bit at all. But that's all post-story commentary. So for some of you, I'm going to pause right now, wish you a wonderful day. Have fun when you get to episode number 14. It's going to be really a good episode, I can promise you that. And for the rest of you, well, we'll talk again in about 15 seconds. So welcome to the post-story commentary. And and I, I said that what we we're going to talk about inside of this post-story commentary was we're going to talk about this idea of Aristia in a little bit more detail. 
Because Aristia as well, you got Diomedes Aristia in this particular story, and it's the only Aristia I'm going to take a lot of time telling you inside of the Trojan War epic, simply because they all follow a fairly similar pattern. And now that you have an idea of how an Aristia works, well, if I told you every Aristia inside of the Trojan War epic, as I said, we'd be here for just another maybe 10 hours on Aristia alone. But what, what you need to know about an Aristia is that they happen. Many characters inside of the Trojan War epic are going to have them, both Greeks and Trojans. And, and what an Aristia really was is a moment of supreme glory or military achievement, a, a moment of greatness. And an Aristia essentially inside of the Iliad has, and apparently scholars tell me, things I've read, I don't, I'm no scholar myself, so things I've read tell me that Aristias show up in all kinds of contemporary Bronze Age works. So it's a fairly standard pattern. And, and, and an Aristia tends to consist of a few things. The, the first thing that happens, of course, is that the, the hero who is going to have the Aristia is, is infused with, with something by the god who, who has given the, the, the character of the Aristia that they're going to have that day. So, uh, of course, uh, Athena infuses Diomedes with, with something which causes him to take on godlike strengths. In other words, something happens to a, a character having an Aristia which turns him into something closer to a god than a human during the time period of their Aristia. And then whatever it is wears off and, and, and they're back to normal again. And, and then once, of course, the, the hero with the Aristia has been infused with this deific power and glory and resistance to damage and harm, well, then they're armed. And, and in all the Aristias, of course, the, the putting on of the weapons is, is described in detail. And, and the weapons themselves and the armor is imbued with incredible, incredible deific glory. And of course, Diomedes' weapons glow in, in a fearsome way. And you're going to see this later happening with, uh, with the Aristias of some other characters that I don't want to mention for fear of giving you plot spoilers. But, but, but then the character goes into battle and incredible havoc during the Aristia, and they managed to demonstrate remarkable excellence in battle uh, against overwhelming odds and against the most heroic and glorious of foes. Before, at some stage during the fighting, the hero will actually have a form of setback. Uh, some kind of an injury will temporarily pull them out of battle, and, and just when you think it's over and the hero is done for and they won't be able to come back, they recover miraculously and fully from the injury, and they go on even to more glorious and heroic episodes before the Aristia finally comes to an end. So, so that's a standard pattern inside of most Aristias. And, and that brings us to the next question. Well, how do you get an Aristia? Who, who, who gets Aristias? And there's two answers to this. The first one is, of course, well, the only one that gets an Aristia, the only people that get them inside of Homer in particular, are heroic warlords. There are no Aristia or Aristii, whatever it would be, granted to common nobody foot soldiers. It's not, though, in the middle of the Iliad, suddenly we hear about, you know, a guy named, uh, and then there was a soldier, Alex, Alexopolis, who came from Greece, and he was a fishmonger, and, and, and he had a slingshot, and he had done, done no fighting at all of any particular glory, and he was a little bit of a coward, and he, he tended to stand in the back ranks and, and, and only fight when necessary, but then suddenly he was imbued by Apollo, and, and that kind of thing just doesn't happen inside of any of the Bronze Age epics. You get an Aristia if you are Aristia worthy, and, and no common soldiers ever get that luxury. The other thing, though, about the Aristias, which is maybe a little bit more telling, is frequently the Aristias are seen as a, as a compensatory gift from the Olympian gods to the human being themselves. And the, the compensation is because, well, humans are mortals, we're going to die. And, and sometimes, not always, but in many Aristia, at the conclusion of the Aristia, the hero actually dies. They, one of the features of an Aristia, a final step, is sometimes the, the individual imbued with these deific powers actually 
steps across the bounds of mortal behavior, begins to think that they actually are a god as opposed to a human, and and then they get their comeuppance and they die because they've just pushed it a little bit too far. So sometimes an aristia ends in the death of the hero. Uh, all the time, though, the aristia is seen as some form of compensation from the gods for the fact that this poor mortal schmuck, no matter how great and heroic in life, is it has a very short four score and ten, and then is done for. And and some people even argue that when they talk about why the aristia are featured so prominently inside of the Iliad. Well, if you live inside of a, a preliterate culture where you can't record the, the deeds of, of the great heroes, either by writing them down or, or by putting together some sort of a video YouTube repertoire or a greatest hits package uh, of, well, take a look at what he did during this battle or take a look what he did during this battle. None of that stuff was available to the Bronze Age Greeks. So, so describing and compacting a glorious hero's deeds down into one set piece moment of glory made sense. It was sort of like, well, see, this is this guy at his very most beautiful, perfect fighting best. And, and you can follow sort of modern day versions of this in a non-war setting by, by going to a video of, you know, Wayne Gretzky's greatest moves or, or, or Magic Johnson's greatest baskets, that sort of thing. And, and, the Bronze Age, of course, didn't have that. So the only way that you accounted Aristeas was through long, epic verbal explanations, which then the bards recited down through the centuries. Now, I, I went looking for a contemporary example of Aristea, and, I, and I, I had a hard time finding them inside of war movies, and more on that in a moment. But where you can actually see contemporary Aristea uh, most commonly in film form is if you look into the action and the adventure or the fantasy genre. And usually, if you find a movie that has an ensemble cast, so there's not one hero, but a, but a band of heroic brothers going into some form of battle, well, then each of those heroic uh, brothers or heroes will receive their, their five to 15 minutes of fame where they will get their personalized little aristia inside of the two and a half or three hour movie and contemporary examples of this if you want to take a look if you go to peter jackson's brilliant lord of the rings movies uh, uh, what you find in in that particular trilogy of movies is is many different aristia and, and one of them if you want to go look in the fellowship of the rings is the death of boromir and it follows the classic aristia pattern and then ends of course with boromir dying himself having achieved his moment of greatest glory and and then when you get to the final uh, episode of that trilogy of movies you're going to see uh, an aristia where the character lives but it, it but it is a spectacular aristia all the same and it's legolas uh, um, Legolas's personal assault against the entire forces of darkness and an oliphant. And it, it's worth looking because it follows the pattern. And, and in a way, when Homer tells us about the Aristia, the language at times seems to almost slow down to revel in the precise nature of every incredible moment of the battle. And of course, now we just do that with slow-mo and stop-action photography the very same way inside of our movies. Now, back to the problem of why I can't find an awful lot of Aristia inside of contemporary war movies. And and I have a hypothesis. It's only my hypothesis, but I think it's this. And I think that our 20th and 21st century, well, our attitudes to war, if you will, are are somewhat different than they were in the Bronze Age. And our, our defining text, if you will, which informs our attitudes towards all things to do with war is, is possibly no longer the text of Homer's Iliad, which was the defining text of how to approach and think about war for centuries. But I would argue it's maybe more likely um, Eric Maria remarks all quiet on the Western Front, uh, a text, obviously, which provides a horrific and precise and detailed snapshot of life of the common cannon fodder foot soldiers in the trenches of World War I, or, or, or possibly Wilfred Owen's poem, uh, Anthem for Doomed Youth, which asks what passing bells for those who die as cattle. And, and, and I think those are likely 
those two ideas reflect our contemporary concepts about war as like. And so sometime, my hypothesis is, in the 20th century, we our attitudes to war changed. You know, whether that actually happened in the trenches of World War One, as I think, or whether, as others argue, it might have happened in the in the gas chambers of World War II, or as others argue, uh, on the six o'clock news coverage every night of the Vietnam War. Well, whatever the case, we no longer in the late 20th and 21st century feel comfortable seeing war as anything but terrible. We do not like the concept of war being glorious. And, and that means that whenever we tell stories of war, we get antsy if it looks as though the characters in that war are just having too much fun and celebrating and getting too much pleasure out of the killing and dying. And, and, and of course, well, my own take on the entire Trojan War epic is obviously culturally implicated by this. If, if you look at how I, I address Homer's Iliad in my opening of Homer's Iliad, I, I'm immediately talking about war, war rape and crimes against humanity. And it's, it's certainly not the opening to Homer's Iliad that most of the people over the last 3,500 years would have focused on. But, but I'm culturally implicated. I, I can't talk about war without, well, talking about the death and the carnage. And there is one really curious thing inside of Homer, which again, I've noted, and, and I find a little bit strange, which is that Homer, well, he, he describes death in, in vivid, clinical, unabashed, and, and very ungentle detail. But one of the things I do notice inside of Homer, which, which is different, of course, from reading something like All Quiet on the Western Front, is that, well, Homer's heroes and soldiers fighting either live or they die, but they don't ever stagger off of the battlefield maimed and wounded and crippled and then live with those injuries, those maimings, those woundings, those cripplings for years to come. So so Homer doesn't present us with any characters uh, missing a limb or or any characters with post-traumatic stress disorder or, or, or any characters who have who, who try to survive, but their internal injuries just drag on and linger on for days or weeks or months. Uh, Homer doesn't give us any soldiers blinded in war who, who then go completely insane afterwards, but continue to linger and live. The dead inside of the Iliad mercifully die and and then they're gone and their souls depart to the next life. They don't linger on. And, and the lingering on, I think, is something which we see an awful lot more in our new approach to understanding and talking about war and epics in the in the post-World War I age. Now, just just about Homer, though, you, Homer's Iliad is certainly not a, a story which in any way glorifies war, and and that's why I titled this episode Terrible Glorious War. I'm going to stretch the length of this post-story commentary a little bit, folks, and share a couple of Homer's ideas about war with you right now by sharing a couple of passages. So, so Homer is, well, listen to what he says in The Terrible End of War. These are passages from the Iliad himself, and I, and I quote, he flung a rock, and it struck between his eyes, and the man's whole skull split in his heavy helmet. Down the Trojan slammed onto the ground, head down, and courage-shattering death engulfed his corpse. Well, that's not glorious, or, or try this one. And many horses pulled empty chariots across the plain, and they longed for their drivers, but their drivers lay dead on the ground, far dearer now to the vultures than to their wives. Or try this one. Hippolochus jumped up. He tried to flee, but Agamemnon cut him down with his sword, then sliced off his arms and his head and kicked the torso and sent it rolling away through the crowd like a log. Or finally this. And quickly, Peneleus sliced through the Trojan's neck, under the ear, and the whole blade sank in. 
and only a flop of skin kept the man's head attached. The head dangled to one side for a moment, and then the man crumpled to the earth. So we shouldn't be under any illusions that, that, that Homer does what some Hollywood movies do, which show death but don't actually show carnage and actual horrors and people dying in real ways. Uh, Homer's approach to war is very clear-headed and even-handed. He describes what actually happens on a battlefield. But uh, but then there are other passages inside of the Iliad too, which talk about the, the things that we're less comfortable about, which is the glories of war and, and, and the sheer pleasure that these fighting men sometimes are imbued with on the battlefield. So, so, so here's Homer again, talking about Athena imbuing men with, with, with a desire to fight. Her shield of lightning dazzling, swirling around her, headlong Athena swept through the Greek armies, driving soldiers harder, lashing the fury fighting in each Greek's heart. There was no stopping them now, mad for war and struggle. Now suddenly battle thrilled them more than the journey home. Or Hector going into battle. Hector turns to Ajax, and Hector speaks. I, I know about fighting. I know how to kill a man. I know how to swing my shield to the left or right. I know how to charge straight into the frenzy of chariots attacking or fleeing in terror. And I know how to step in the deadly dance of hand-to-hand combat. And, and ladies and gentlemen, there's something inside of the Iliad which at many times in the descriptions of these battle scenes, represents a deadly dance, a, a, a ballet of death. There is undeniably in hand-to-hand fighting, there is a certain athleticism and skill necessary to, to dance in that deadly dance of hand-to-hand combat. And maybe that's why post-World War I and, and death by the, by the millions in trenches by very well anonymous machine gun bullets, maybe that's why our attitudes towards war have changed. And if, well, you're, you're standing on Hiroshima and an atomic bomb is detonated over your city, it's, it's hard to talk about having a certain series of military skills uh, uh, commensurate with what's blowing up in the city sky above you. Uh, back to other bits of Homer, though. Two Greek soldiers talking, and this is really cool. One of them says to the other, My heart has been, has been struck by a jolt of courage. I, I, I feel my body tingling all over. My arms and legs are surging with strength, and, and I long to go into battle. And he confesses this to his comrade-in-arms, who turns around and says, I, I feel it too. There's a current running through my hands. My hands long for a spear. My, my legs want to sprint. My, my body feels stronger than it has ever felt. And, and I can't wait to meet Hector and, and fight him in all of his fury. And Homer goes on to say, these were their words to each other as they exulted in the joy of war. And uh, finally, after a successful day's fighting, the day that I ended the episode on with Hector camped outside on the beach with the huge bonfires blazing and his Trojan comrades and his brothers in arms sitting beside those fires with him, the narrator Homer turns around and says, so with elated hearts, they sat up all night in the battlefield and they watched their fires blaze around them. So I, I think we have to, when we're reading Homer, recognize that he provides a very neutral treatment. He's, the other thing he's very unapologetic about is he doesn't, he doesn't shy away from the horrors of war. There's so many scenes I've told you about in the Iliad where uh, the Trojan women account in graphic detail precisely the fate they're expecting if the Greeks get inside of the city. So there's, there's nothing glamorous about what's going to happen to the victims of war. And Somehow I think that the reason why the Iliad and the Trojan War epic remain so incredibly compelling all down through these centuries is in spite of the fact that currently we're more than a little awkward and uncomfortable with the, well, with glorious war, we, we 
we recognize that there's still something that stirs in our hearts when we hear these stories. Uh, I, I'm going to conclude with a, a great scholar of Greek classics, a guy named Bernard Knox, who who actually does the the preface to a translation, uh, Fagel's translation of Homer's Iliad. And, and Bernard Knox uh, makes this comment about why we still find Homer's Iliad our best descriptions of war. And here's what he says. 3,000 years have not changed to the human condition in this respect. We are still lovers and victims of the will to violence. And so long as we are, Homer will be read as its truest interpreter. And, and I think that's likely the truth of the matter. You, Every century decides whether it wants to focus on the on terrible war or glorious war. And every century, of course, brings its own politics, its own sensibility, and its own recent military history of war into that particular equation when it makes that call. But Every century can go back to Homer and inside of the Iliad find glorious and terrible war in equal balance. And I think we'll leave things here. Uh, obviously, glorious, terrible war is going to continue with the very next podcast episode because Agamemnon and his generals sitting in their tents uh, are going to have to make some dire decisions tonight. And those decisions are going to impact on the kind of battle, if there's a battle at all, that happens tomorrow morning. So we're going to leave things there, ladies and gentlemen. Um, hope you've had fun. Hope you've learned a few things. Thanks for hanging in for a particularly epically long episode of the Post Story Commentary. And I will see you very soon when episode number 14 of Trojan War, the podcast, will be up on the website. So have yourselves an absolutely wonderful day and we'll talk to you again soon.